we have a very special interview on tap, standing by in the studio, Carolyn Van de Weel and Rory Block. We're going to get into it with a track from Rory Block from her most recent release, Keeping Out of Trouble. It's a tribute to Mississippi country blues legend Bucka White. Let's listen to the title track, Keeping Out of Trouble. said that man's going far he said go home son and play the guitar so he signed himself a pardon and they lifted up the bar now it's goodbye to the farm and all the poor boys don't let me see your face again just keep out of trouble well you got to keep out of trouble all right Keeping out of trouble, keeping out of trouble, keeping out of trouble, trouble, if you can. Got some keeping out of trouble, keeping out of trouble, trouble, keeping out of trouble, if you can. Keep out of trouble. 
song. Now we're on. Keeping Out of Trouble. It's a wonderful song performed by Rory Block. Rory Block is in town to perform tonight at the Buskirk Chumley Theater, a benefit concert for Amethyst House, which is a group that dedicates its life to helping people with addictions. Austin Lucas opens the show, and Rory Block will headline, and she has been great enough to welcome or to uh, to come down to the studio and uh, do a firehouse session with us. Welcome, Rory Block, to WFHB. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Are you a person who keeps out of trouble? Um, no, actually, that that you just jump right in with that one. You know, I my mother used to say, Rory always says the things that either make people laugh or cry. So it's kind kind of runs in my family to just like boom, just say this thing, and then everybody goes, oh, you know. So you know, so no, I don't think I do. I I try. I try. I've tried to. Uh, get better at that over the years. Well, one good thing that you did do was stay out of the drug culture in the village. I did. And that's a reason that you're still around with us. I don't know. It just was too scary for me. Honestly, it wasn't as morality judgment. It was just I was, um, I've always loved reality and, you know, and I I think I found it scary. I didn't want to feel out of control. But that, you know, that's just me. I've always been that way. Well, you grew up with music. Your mother was a singer. Your father played fiddle and the banjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, but about year 10 or so, you discovered the blues? I was 14. 14. Um, when I was 10, I picked up a guitar, and I just thought there had always been a lot of music in my household. My parents were, um, you know, my mother sang folk music. My parents both were classical musicians and there was music all the time you know when I came home from school music 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 on the on the stereo and all that um so we we were definitely a music oriented family we had a classical orchestra my sister played cello you know it, we we all could play together and so I decided at the age of 10 that I wanted to figure out the guitar and so I I started trying to work things out by ear and that kind of lasted as my the way I operated. After that, I was like, that was my specialty, figuring things out by ear. You know, I did Froggy Went a Courtin' as my first great discovery. E-A, E-A, Froggy Went Courtin', he did E-A, E-A. I'm like, whoa, this is cool, E-A. Uh, but I went on to, I loved listening to early recordings and trying to figure out the tuning and what the notes were, and that became like a lifelong obsession. And it's, I'm still doing it with my tribute CD. So I'm still listening and going, what was that person playing? Let me see if this is the right chord. Let me try this one. And having methods for being able to figure things out by ear is important to me. Well, you were born just outside of Princeton, New Jersey, but you grew up in the West Village, which of course was a much different place then than it is now. True. Can you talk about uh, those formative years? Well, there were musicians everywhere. Um, I start where we, I was born in New Jersey. You and I were talking about that, that you did um, New York to New Jersey, and I did New Jersey to New York. And, and uptown to downtown. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, uh, Pete Seeger lived right up the street with his wife, Toshi, and her parents. I had a brownstone on McDougal Street. My parents, my dad rented a room there. I didn't find out until until I wrote a book from talk to Pete Seeger, and he told me that. My dad rented a room, and then that's why my parents knew, you know, Theodore Bikel and Woody Guthrie and uh, Josh White and uh, all these outrageous great players. 
and they all lived, you know, within blocks of each other or came to town on a, you know, Woody Guthrie came to town. And it was just an amazing, uh, very vital music scene. And to me, it was just like everybody's into music all the time. It was just normal. And then uh, after a, a period of time, my dad had a sandal shop on West 4th Street, and Bob Dylan moved in right up, you know, half a block away and would come in and play music and talk with my dad. And uh, John Lennon moved in. Uh, oh, actually, Bob lived like two doors away. John Lennon moved in half a block away. That, but that was normal. That was normal. There were musicians everywhere. Everybody was jamming, people sitting on the, uh, you know, the front steps of their house, people in Washington Square Park. Everybody who stopped in brought their instruments. It was just music all the time. And then Stefan Grossman, I understand, gave you an album that introduced you to the blues. He did. I saw, I saw him playing in Washington Square Park, and I was drawn to the sound of the ragtime guitar. And I went, because there was bluegrass over here, and there was folk music over here, and there was... Uh, you know, a little bit of sort of early rock and roll and some bongo playing over there. There was everything was there. And I heard this great sound, and it was ragtime. Stefan was playing like maple leaf rag or whatever he was playing. I'm like, what is that? So I made my way through the crowd, and there was this young man playing this beautiful Gibson guitar. And I guess I started talking with him, and he gave me a record called Really the Country Blues. And I had heard country blues, but not in that kind of a focused way. Here's a whole record of all these different artists. And that was it. I was instantly hooked. I already loved early Apple, what what uh, I now know is pronounced as Appalachian, but we pronounce it Appalachian in New York. And then when you talk to people from the area where the music comes from, they they will tell you it's Appalachian. So I already played music with my dad at that point, and I was backing him up with a Carter family style flat picking. He was playing fiddle. Um, but I wasn't really listening to blues as much until I met Stefan Grossman, and then it was like blues around the clock permanently, blues all the time. And Stefan had uh, some very important formative uh, influences on your life. You all went off to California together. Yes, yes. I, I would say I ran away from home. And But Stefan kind of was a guardian angel because he was four years older, and he had a very stable background. And I, I had kind of run away, and I, my background at that point was very unstable, and his was very stable. And he was almost like a, uh, as I said, like a, he was almost a father figure, but I being 14 when I met him, and he was 18. And so he kind of guided me through the process. His parents were very loving and caring, and when I suppose when we needed something, it was probably the two of them, his parents, that probably helped us out. But we made our way all over the country, and we hitchhiked, and we had adventures. I don't think you could do what we did anymore. It's a different world. But at the time, it seems like we were able to survive. We were able to hitchhike. I don't know how <laughs> we did it. We were driving with somebody who drove off the road in the middle of the night, you know, by some strange quirk of fate. We didn't get injured and so on. So here I am today. We made it all the way to Berkeley. Berkeley was a great adventure. Everybody there played music as well. You know, Fred McDowell came over to the house. Country Joe and the Fish was hanging around playing music on the front steps of the of the university. And everybody knew everybody. And, you know, it was just a great place and great times. You guys were also a, a part of a group that in New York went out and so, sought out 
uh, old blues players who were living around New York. I'm presuming this is where your mentor series came from, with those yeah, formative that was, experiences. That was a very big part of it, absolutely. Stefan knew uh, record collectors, like I think of Sam Charters. There, there was sort of a, a little society of early American blues lovers and country uh, Appalachian Mountain music lovers and country blues lovers. And we all knew each other, and we were all sort of playing music in the same venues, the same coffee houses, Washington Square Park, music parties at each other's houses. But there was kind of a different crowd in that the blues crowd and the and the old-timey crowd. They, we overlapped some, but we were also specialized groups. And the group that loved country blues consisted of people who either played the music, and there were just a handful, John Hammond, myself, uh, Joanne Kelly in England, who would come through the city, and uh, not that many people. Bonnie Raitt would, would have been starting out at around that time, although I, I, didn't yet, I hadn't yet um, really, really immersed myself in her music when I was 14. I think that was probably a little bit before she started. I don't know. Um, and then there were the record collectors. It was very important that the record collectors were part of this crowd because they would go canvassing the South, driving around, and they would come back with LPs that had been deleted from record company archives and things that we would get to listen to. They'd put these old LPs, these crackly old LPs, onto reel-to-reel tapes, and I would listen all night long. Stefan lent me a reel-to-reel tape player. I put on these giant headphones, and I slept with the, the two hours of music playing with the rediscovered music that was transferred over to tape. And so that that was really full-time. So so there was the record collectors, there were the musicians, and there were the people who went and looked for the early players, and they would l- literally knock on doors. I'm sure they sat around and made a list, like, oh, well, let's see if we can find Mississippi John Hurt. What about Sun House? What about, you know, Skip James? Um, how about Book of White? And they found quite a few of the players still alive. Some they found were not alive. I, you know, a, a major example would be Robert Johnson. We wanted him to be alive. He could have come and done a concert at Carnegie Hall with some other players. But at that time, John Hammond Sr. found that Robert Johnson, everybody said, well, he had, you know, he had passed away. So, but these great uh, people who went and looked for the players were, were doing an amazing service, and they'd bring them through Greenwich Village. And they'd come to my dad's store sometimes, and other times Steph- they'd come to Stefan's parents' house, and I'd spend time with Sun House at Stefan's parents' house. And uh, we went and saw Mississippi John Hurt at his home, which at the time was outside Washington, D.C., and we saw Skip James in the hospital. You know, just really deep and really powerful and totally inspiring, totally inspiring. And as you said, that's where my mentor series came from. And and by the way, Reverend Gary Davis lived in the Bronx, so we didn't have to look for him. for him. He was already there. And so we'd just go up and see him, and Stefan took lessons, and I would just audit just a shy little kid, really, and I would just sit there and be amazed, you know. So the mentor series is those who I met in person, which was really five or six, six, which is the total number of my mentor series. And just so people know, those are Sunhouse, Fred McDowell, the Reverend Gary Davis, John Hurt, or Mississippi John Hurt, Skip James, and the latest album, which is a tribute to Bucket White. Yes, yes. Yeah. So um, now there's a new mentor series coming. Yes. Uh, I, I have to credit my record company, Stony Plain Records, 
because they get excited about things and they and and they give me uh, you know they ask questions like what do you want to do next you know and that kind of thing and I'm I guess I'm sitting there thinking like uh, not really having a clear vision of it but as I thought about it I thought I need to do mentor series too and this time I'd like it to be to the great women of the blues who inspired me equally as much but I didn't get a chance to meet them because most of them were not around at that point some were. Uh, we know that, you know, Bonnie Raitt spent time with, I think it's Sippy Wallace and Maria Muldor, who I think of as my sister. We were like sisters. She grew up in the village, too, and she was always there. And I looked up to her. I thought she was just the greatest. Um, so I thought, well, I really want to celebrate the women whose music I listen to because a lot of people say, well, there really weren't any women players at that. And I'm going, no, there were. They just... It took years for their recordings to get reissued because, as we know, in the 60s, you could go to a record store and nobody had any of these old records. So you just would have to either find the most eclectic record shop and then you'd have to sign your name and, uh, to a list and say, I need this record. And then they would look for it for months and they might get it in and they might not. But then over time and, – and there were like literally – you could see – you could hear Bessie Smith – and a few of the jazzier, uh, bluesier, jazzy singers, women that were later, they were more like 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where I was, I'm talking about 20s and 30s and where were somehow. Women of the Harlem Renaissance and, yeah. and such. Um, so it just struck me that I really, because I, I listened heavily to Bessie Smith and I've recorded her stuff over the years, here, one here, one there, that that was really where I wanted to go. I wanted to say... Those women were always there. They just didn't have permission. Like, imagine a woman leaving her kids somewhere with maybe family or friends and hopping on a freight train and going to speakeasies every night. There was no societal permission to do that whatsoever. You would have been truly given a hard time about doing that. Where a man, at the time, could leave his children somewhere, get on a freight train and go from bar to bar and juke joint to juke joint, and that would have been considered just something that somebody would do. But for a woman, think of how hard that would be. So there was really, I think, um, a much harder road uh, for, for the women, the early women of the blues. Uh, Memphis Minnie, I, I just think of some of them. And they, they were so obscure for so long. And then they started reissuing them more recently in, in packages and in individual CDs. And I'm so glad to see that. So I want to be out there. I've always felt that part of my role was to bring attention to the early players because I saw that over time their names were not being mentioned. I saw that there were pop groups and things using elements of, if not entire songs, that they might have listened to in an early LP, but not crediting the original writer. No names will be mentioned. But I just always felt compelled to say, this song is written by Willie Brown, this song is written by Maddie Delaney, and I really felt that I was on a mission to let people know the original players. So I'm still on that mission. I really am. Well, yeah. you know, we could probably go on for six hours about this. You're obviously yeah. a, a student of the blues, um, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Oh, my gosh. You have sound check to do, and yeah. uh, we need to turn the things back over to the studio. Tell oh, us just uh, quickly yeah. what, what we're going to hear tonight. Um, I do a mix of everything. I also am a songwriter. I have a song in Europe called Love and Whiskey, which I wrote. You know, that's why I sort of have this feeling of connection 
to uh, what, what Amethyst House does. We're all in this thing together. I wrote a song to somebody who had a drinking problem. And I, when you asked me early on about that, I should say that I have tremendous compassion for it. And it's part of the human condition to, you know, to, to long for things, to get uh, overly loving about, you know, it, it's just part of our condition and we need to help each other. And so my song, Love and Whiskey, was about loving somebody who later actually uh, was, was recovered. But I feel a strong sense of, of understanding and compassion. Well, I'm going to wind this up with a great quote, and I will say that if anybody wants to know about Rory Block, she has an awesome website. Oh, thank you. Um, you can <laughs> find out that. about her music there. You can uh, find out all about her. But I love this quote, life is short and fragile. I know we all have a mission. Don't forget that it's a great privilege to be in this miraculous place and that if you're here, you're chosen. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, thank Rory, for coming you. in today. We're going to leave... Uh, this interview with uh, one last song, The Parchment Blues, from a tribute to Book Buckle of White. White. It's a Book of White song. Well, the judge gives me life is a mom down on Parchment Farm. I wanna go back home
that I will 